Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Welcome to a very special episode of the European VC, our LP Roundtable. We've gathered three of Europe's masterminds in VC fund investing for a candid, upfront discussion about topics core to European VCs. We're joined by Chris, an exited entrepreneur and founding partner of Isoma Capital, David, head of ICT investments at the EIF, and Ertan, founding partner of Multiple Capital. We've got two topics on the table for today. Topic one, what the GP of the future would look like. And topic two, what bad LP behavior our panelists see in the market and which GPs we should be aware and wary of. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and we promise there'll be more of them. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to Four Degrees. Four Degrees is the VC relationship intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Welcome to this very special episode of the European VC. We're so excited to have you for the LP roundtable that everyone has been waiting for. Chris, David, and Ertan, feel free to just take the floor real quick, let people know who you are, but don't bore us to death. <laughs> Chris, go ahead. Hi, my name's Chris Wade. I'm with a fund of funds called Isomer Capital, and we invest exclusively in European amazing early stage VCs. The great news is there's lots of you. So hi everyone, thanks for having me here. So my name is David Dana, working for the European Investment Fund, where basically we are investing as an LP into a quite large number of VC funds across Europe mainly. We are quite active with average volume of investments close to 3 billion euros every year. My name is Ertan Jan. I am the founder of Multiple Capital. It's also a fund of funds, private fund of funds, focused on micro VCs. So we are investing in very small funds, mainly in the European ecosystem, but also outside. We're not large at all, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, I've invested in the last nine years in now 45 micro VCs. That's relatively high quantity for a private LP, I would say. And um, yeah, happy to do what I'm doing, happy to back really great GPs in the ecosystem in Europe, but also outside of Europe. Thank you for that to the three of you. Nice to have some of you back and nice to welcome others of you for the first time in the podcast. Super cool. I think the most interesting topic to start with is just by your very short intros, we could tell slightly different focuses, different approaches, different structures. So I want to ask you, from your perspective, where you're standing, what does the GP of the future look like? And so another way to ask the same question is, what are those GPs that just get you like jumping in your chair and super excited and that you just need to do something with them? So I'd love to drop that question to all of you. Of course, one of the biggest trends that we see at the moment and for the last two years, I would say, is a strong, strong trend to 
what we call micro and solo GPs, right? So um, there is really a lot of good GPs, you know, uh, new GPs leaving either from funds or having an operational background and starting a VC just by themselves. No team, no real large infrastructure around that fund, but very straightforward solo GP funds. That's a huge trend that I see. The other trend, of course, which is probably partly because of COVID, is that the whole market became more interactive. So you see like, you know, funds from Africa reaching out to us and we have a call this afternoon with an African GP and tomorrow morning with a GP from the Netherlands and tomorrow afternoon with someone from the US. And this was different two years ago. Just to give you an example, I was in Paris this week and I reached out to a few GPs. So I thought, you know, being in Paris after, I think, two years, there should be a lot of meetings, physical meetings, and no one really got back. And I think people are used to those kind of video calls and Zoom calls that they don't see a great value anymore in meeting someone in person. And I can understand that. It works quite well for everyone at the moment. And it increases the efficiency, of course. But in the end, we are all human beings. I don't know, but everyone probably misses the, you know, some part of our business where we went to events, where we met each other, where we had a dinner together or a lunch together. So that's the trends that I see in GPs. The future of GP is a philosophical question, I would say. I would like to see in future GPs is, are GPs that really understand their niche, understand their value. You know, uh, I think David touched upon bringing value add to founders, but also understanding what is your real value, what should you be focused on being less opportunistic. So that's something that I would really like to see more. I see a lot of GPs being very opportunistic at the moment. I'd like to see more people believing in what they can do really well and are really good at and focusing on that and not trying to, we say in German, you know, dancing at a lot of weddings Try to avoid that and try not to run behind every trend. So I see like a lot of generalist funds, for example, give an example, now doing crypto as well or other verticals as well, right? So everything that's hot, they jump on it, but they are not the right people, right? So they are really vertically focused funds who are the right people and who believed in that vertical like three, four or five years ago already. I think those are the right ones that founders also want to work with. So that, that's another thing that I would like to see in future GPs. Very exciting. Chris, I'll kick it to you for you to uh, reply as well. And then uh, David and I have done some notes and we'll try and moderate a debate here because we're seeing some places where there might be some disagreement. First of all, I don't want to repeat all the excellent words that have been said so far. So three things. Sectorization. The idea of a vertically focused fund, I think five years ago, really was not a thing, perhaps in fintech. But we're now seeing education tech, regulation tech, Fintech clearly is an emerging thing. And this is, to Ertan's point, where VCs are really focusing on their specialization. They're going to become known for this. So that's one thing. The second thing is us as LPs becoming more flexible around fund models, moving away from that traditional standard terms and all those things around that. And what's driving that to some extent is what's happening in the crypto world. Everybody wants in some way, shape or form to be involved in this revolution in what's happening 
with money, basically. And therefore, crypto funds are becoming interesting and important, and they're very different. They might be different in terms of how they distribute money. They might be different in terms of how they take money. There may be tokens involved. And we need to evolve with that too, but within the context of us deploying other people's money. And then finally, the third thing, a fact of life. And that is GPs get younger and we get older. And we have to be wonderfully accepting of the fact that these new young people, and David, you mentioned this about impact and social awareness, are coming with new ideas, new things that we have to say, just wonderful, let's talk about it. And not like all that sort of historic sort of baggage say, no, 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 that won't possibly work. We have to be accepting that we are moving. We're in the business of funding innovation. Innovation will move on. And people are coming up with tremendously exciting things that we have to be ready to back, even if perhaps our traditional mindset would say that's nonsense. But the fact is, it's not nonsense. It's just new. I really like a point that Chris just brought up regarding the age point, right? I'm the young kid in this conversation. I'm the youngest guy here. So obviously that interests me, right? I've personally over the last year and or two years or so, you know, we've seen some really interesting developments on the crypto side. 25-year-old GPs raising really reasonably well-sized funds. We've seen the also 25, 26-year-old more kind of GPs following more the kind of creator-based approach, raising humongous funds as well, not only in Europe, but also outside of Europe. And so what I want to kind of ask you all and, and have your different views is, to what extent are these things sustainable? And what do you see as the big risks behind this? Because I'm seeing GPs managing big amounts of money with less experience on that side of managing other people's money and having that mandate and fiduciary duty. So whoever wants to take it, feel free. I think indeed that something which is stunning for the which has been stunning for the last five six years is that the fund sizes have significantly increased over time, and it was also uh, combined with uh, a shorter period of time between two generations of fund. So we have seen a lot of money injected into the market, and indeed a number of uh, nascent industries. You mentioned crypto and everything related to blockchain, but there are a few other ones such as uh, quantum technologies, new space industry, all those topics where there's been a lot of initiatives, either with uh, fully specialized funds or a bit more generalized deep tech funds with some strong focus on those verticals, addressing those opportunities. What we have seen is that indeed there has been a few also public programs to finance those initiatives and we at the IEF were in charge of investing some of them. And for sure, when there is money available, it creates a lot of initiatives. So we've seen a lot of proposals coming over. When we announced, for instance, a program for AI and blockchain, during the following 12 to 18 months, we saw maybe something like 50, 60 proposals. We backed one of these ones because all of them were indeed launched on a very and highly opportunistic basis with very few investment track record, but this is not something you can reproach to the guys for an industry which is nascent. But even though it would not be fully relevant, at least some investment experience, but more importantly, a lot of people with very limited, if any, experience and knowledge of those industries. So this is why we declined most of them. 
maybe some of them will be successful and I wish so because we do not know everything for sure and especially when it's such a new thing but what we have seen is that indeed there were lots of people on the market for a period of uh, 18 to 24 months if you were not in the blockchain or crypto you were not in the market and now it has not fully disappeared but it's far less common than it used to be so there are trends there are hypes but I think that if we do our work and we are here as LP with some uh, experience and seasoned investors as we have here on this panel, we are expected to select those teams that seem to be qualified and having a strong setup to be successful. I would agree with everything you've just said, David. The idea that there is a fixed amount of money and that's the size of a fund is really quite interesting. And that, of course, has evolved as Europe has become more confident and more successful in venture capital. But really, we're not asking the question how big the fund is. What we're really asking is, and this is what David was just saying, is do we believe that the team that is going to deploy this capital has the wherewithal to make that into a successful venture? program. So whether the number is 100, 200, 500 is somewhat irrelevant. The question is, can this team, A, attract the type of very high quality entrepreneurs that you need? Do they know how to work them? And then do they know how to run a fund? I mean, one of the really interesting things is in Europe right now is we have a tremendous track record on venture capital is growing and growing and growing, but it's mostly unrealized. It's gains that have happened because of great uplifts and great confidence and great belief as society of technology. But that has to be turned into distributions to LPs so we can fund the next generation of funds. And that is yet to come. And that is probably the biggest interesting thing for us here in Europe is to think about how do we help people become great fund managers? When do you sell your stake in a company? When's the right time? Because the next round is going to be even bigger and better, and it's amazing, and it's fantastic, and it's going to be 1 billion, 2 billion. But actually, dear GP, could we have some of our money back, please? It's only been eight years, you know, please. I actually think that that part, it's not maybe as much to the future GP, but it's very much to the current GP because we're seeing GPs everywhere racing with enormous TVPIs and also IRIs, right? They're even worse. <laughs> and you're starting... Yeah, yeah but not that, not that frequently. TVPIs. Yeah, exactly. That's 0.12 or something like that. So what would be your take on that? And how do you think about it now as fund investors? And how do you talk to emerging GPs that are on fund two, but still only have TVPI to show for it? Yeah, I think I agree. Maybe one thing that I would like to add is, I think there is a risk that we are facing, which is... If some of those solo GPs, right, or you know, new managers, let's say like this, realize that the fund might not be as good, you know, as they expected, uh, or sold or promised, I think the threshold of leaving that structure or not running it further and just doing something else, that threshold is very low because the management fee alone will be, for most of those very ambitious guys, not enough, right? So if they see, okay, I've done three years investment and maybe there is a bad cycle and it's a you know, very small fund, 
I think a lot of emerging managers will not stay emerging managers the next 20 years or not stay managers the next 20 years. That is a risk that we are very much aware of. And we try to, of course, select and try to have the better managers, but even within our portfolio. So I'm talking in general. I think a lot of managers raise capital easily at the moment, new managers, new funds. Many of them also very small funds, you know, and they think they will raise more or again, whatever the focus is. But I think many of those new managers will be not existent in five years time. So they will be not able to raise again. They will be not continue we're planning to do. This is a risk that I see coming. You know, we see really strongly coming. And I think this will even hit maybe some of the managers in our own portfolio when they realize, okay, that's not a 10x fund what they expect it to be, you know, and they have a good job offer from some of the bigger tech companies, you know, who are at the moment paying very good salaries and then offer really good alternatives. That might be a job move for uh, some managers. That is one of the risks that I see in, in the markets currently. A follow-up question to that would then be, okay, if that's the problems of the GPs today, <laughs> then the GP of the future, is that a secondary fund that goes in and buys all these stakes from failing slash emerging managers that just realized, ah, maybe there's a better path for me? I think in general, yes. I think uh, if this becomes a problem, the secondary market will be more active and it will be more opportunities for the secondary market to buy those you know, shares. That's clear. I think some of the players globally already started to build something like that because they foresee what is probably coming. But I mean, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know. And the biggest question is always timing. You don't know when. Will we have a bad cycle in the next three years, five years, seven years? We just don't know. Right. So that is the unknown factor here. So timing that is very difficult. I think if you promise today, hey, I will do, you know, a secondary fund and buy those uh, managers. Maybe we are seeing another five years of really great times and no one sells. <laughs> so you might have or no one sells at a discount. You're not selling your best uh, things. So it will be more difficult, I think. One thing that I forgot to answer, sorry, is the TVPI, IRR and DPI things that you touched upon. I think one of the worst things that you see at the moment, and for, especially for the last two years maybe, is the IRR thing, right? So everyone comes back with extremely high IRRs in very, very short periods. Sorry, guys. I mean, that does not work, right? So if you have a six-month track and show me an IRR, it's just completely irrelevant, right? So TVPI, I personally see different, especially if the TVPI is like over a longer period. So it might be your angel portfolio. It might be your, you know, whatever you have done in the last years. If it's like a five-year period and you show markups, Yes, that is relevant. If you want to see DPI, yes, of course, we will see at some point DPI, but investing based on DPI today is extremely difficult in Europe. We have to admit that, right? So there are not a lot of funds with high DPIs and realized fully DPI funds. And if they are, they raise huge amounts today, right? So they, those are the funds who can raise probably because they can show a DPI, a solid DPI. They will be not, like for us at least, they will be not relevant anymore because they will raise probably a 200 million or a 500 million fund, right? So I think we have to be fair in the European market. And I know that Bjorn Tramery, you know, always spoke about that when he speaks about DPI. I think if you trust these markets, there will be some DPI at some point. Right. So I think many of the TVPIs that I see in my portfolio, these are solid TVPIs. So there might be some companies who are late stage and there might be a correction of those late stage companies. But 
those TVPIs will be at some point DPIs. Again, timing is very difficult. You know, you don't know if it's year eight, year 10, year 12. And we all know that those funds might take longer. But I think even if they take longer, this will be strong DPIs in the European ecosystem for the TVPIs that we see at the moment. You know, we all have to believe in that. Otherwise, why would we do that job that we're doing? Also, personally, I want to see carry, so I need the DPI in the funds. <laughs> And I, I just believe that this will happen. That's what I'm saying. But to continue on this topic, Ertan, yeah, just something we've seen over the last five, six months, I would say, so quite recent trend, is some of those funds with a very nice TVPI, but not a DPI, coming and asking us as an existing LP whether we would see this positively for them to start some kind of secondary transactions. And as you rightly said, I think being a secondary player now is quite a, a good time, even though some companies are highly valued. And as a feedback we got from a, quite a number of secondary players uh, who have been interacting with uh, some of our GPs, the feedback from the GPs is that they are highly sophisticated. They know very much about the market, about how to value companies. And in most cases, they make quite decent offers. You know, it's not like uh, five, 10 years ago when you, they came with a 30, 40% discount. It's now sometimes five, 10%. And still, there's plan to continue following on in the companies. So this is something which is interesting as a trend because, indeed, when we are asked whether we will sit positively or not, we say it's not us to decide, it's them. But for sure, getting some returns is always good, some DPIs, especially for the higher TVPIs. But maybe that's something that could, at the end, make the difference because we have so many funds with great TVPIs Maybe the ones with some uh, higher TPIs will make it better than the other ones, for sure. But this we cannot tell because also what we've seen at the same time, and this is much more recent and it's still uh, this geopolitical situation uh, become crazy in uh, Ukraine and with the Russian invasion. We saw some secondary players, especially US ones, just withdrawing their offers because of the uncertainty related to that and the impact on the listed markets. I just wanted to add one simple thing before us LPs goes and all slits our wrists on the potential sort of future. I was building companies in the 2000s and when the tech internet bubble happened and again in the financial crisis. And we have what we have today, which is something that might happen. The fundamental thing that is so different this time is the quality of the companies. They're real companies delivering real value, delivering real services, bettering people's lives in many, many cases, and therefore have significant consumer traction, if that's relevant, or business traction if it's a B2B company. And these companies could indeed be profitable if they decided to turn down the accelerator on growth. And that's fundamentally different, which is another way of saying, I think a lot of the TVPI is based on real value growth. When a company goes from a valuation of 50 million to 200 million, and it raises 50 million, you really are asking the entrepreneur only one question. Will you please grow your business to something greater than the higher number during the time that you have that cash, because you're forward investing that valuation. And my point is a lot, not all, a lot of the companies we have in the portfolio and our respective portfolios is based on very solid businesses that will indeed become very important companies in the future. Yeah, and I think that makes a link with what you said, Ertan, on Beyond's comment that DPI will come because, as you rightly said, Chris, it's not anymore because just because you have a .com in your name that you're valued uh, hundreds of millions. Exactly. 
there are concrete uh, financial aggregates. You have revenues, profitability in many cases already. So yeah, there's something concrete and real behind this, definitely. I have to ask a question because, you know, I just don't understand the NFT craze. I don't get it. That's me, right? But I have the feeling, to be very honest, many of the things I see, it's just because it says NFT, <laughs> it just explodes. Like the same way as, as David just said, you know, the dot-com kind of phenomenon. Where do you guys stand there? If you hang around long enough, you will have been through the mobile craze, the social media craze, the AI craze, the craze, the craze, the craze. It happens, it's hype, and then it normalizes. And the interesting thing is some amazing companies will come out of it. One has to remember, what is this panel all about? It's about venture. Venture is a betting business where we hope that some, and indeed they do, become runaway winners. Our take is very similar to Chris' take. We don't try to predict any trends, like when we invest, right? So we really try to back strong GPs who believe they are good in investing in whatever they are investing. We call ourselves an agnostic investor, right? So topic agnostics so sector agnostic or vertically agnostic investors. So we would invest in quantum and I don't have a clue of, uh, in quantum. And the biggest question in quantum is, of course, is again, timing, right? So quantum, yes, it's great, but will it be great in the next five to 10 years? We don't know, but we want to have that option. And the same as AI, machine learning, life science, you know, we're, I always like from the beginning on, I, I tried to allocate always into life science funds and life science GPs, because I think especially European tech, a big proportion is life science and life science companies, again, it's an EIF uh, data, uh, life science funds and life science companies are some of the best performing funds in, in the European history are life science funds. So we always try to back life science, but do I have a lot of understanding of synthetic biology? I don't know, right? So I don't know if that. And the same is for crypto or NFT. In that case, I think if some of the crypto GPs in our portfolio think that this is worth an investment, we would just agree with that and back it and have the diversification and keep that diversification and would be rather surprised in the future, which one will be the real outliers in our portfolio? Because the whole thing that we believe in is we don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know which company or which vertical will be the outlier in the next 10 years for us. And that's why we are trying to allocate in very, very broadly diversified way in a lot of verticals. And we will be surprised by the companies and the verticals that will be the best outliers because we don't know today. That's the real answer. When someone like an LP would ask us, Edson, what is the biggest trend? Where will you invest? I don't know. Yeah, but I think we can agree, Chris and Ayrton, then that uh, we are backing teams. For sure, the strategy is important, but we have to believe in the teams running the funds. Should it be one guy or a, full, a more populated team? That's why we spend so much time on discussing with them, knowing them, knowing with whom they've been working, what is the feedback on them. Basically, we want to make sure that we will be fine with those guys because it's like a marriage, you know, a wedding. A fund is 10 years at least, and maybe it will be longer than most of the weddings now. So you never know. But for sure, if you start with a 10 years lifetime of a fund, most probably it will be 12, 13. And if things go well, there will be generation two, generation three. So it can be for a very long time. So you need to trust the guys and to believe in them, to believe in what they want to do in their vision and in their knowledge of the market and the evolution of the market as well. 
I'd like to actually follow up on that. As you guys know better than me, right? Any early stage VC out there says it's all about the team. It's all about the people. And then when you deep dive on that, and we've done this in the podcast quite a few times, and it's interesting how the answers, they lack depth. They lack, I don't know, advanced thinking. And that makes me think, you know, it's very gut-based decision-making backing teams. So I'd like to ask you guys, you know, how do you think about this? You know, when you meet a GP, you guys are saying here, we back teams, you back teams. So do you have frameworks? Is it a gut decision? Because as you grow, the organization grows, the decision-making processes become more complex. You know, and we have very different structures here right now present. How do you think about that process of deciding this team is an amazing team and I want to back it? Or this GP, in case of solo GPs, is an amazing GP and I want to back him or her? So we believe that the VC has a fundamental customer, and that is the entrepreneur. When we think about backing a GP, we spend a lot of time with that customer understanding the positives, the negatives, trying to get a 360 view of that manager, what they provide, what they do, how do they work, are they good actors, et cetera, et cetera. And then you meet with the VC. And we do this not just on a country basis, not just with one manager in mind, but a number of managers in mind to try and make a decision on where to back. And then we're talking to the VC. And a question we used to ask five years ago that was a bit of a surprise, but thank God is not today, is what is your proposition to your entrepreneur? Five years ago, occasionally we provide capital. Today, we get a much more concrete answer. And so what we're really doing is comparing their view of themselves and their proposition to the one that the customer, the entrepreneurs actually have, and trying to get that understanding you know, there are lots of really great presenters who may not be good VCs. In our world, there's much more shitty presenters who are. I actually think, Chris, what you just said there, we can laugh at you saying that there's more shitty presenters than there's shitty VCs. They're great VCs. But, They're amazing VCs. But I'd also say that I have yet to meet better salesmen than many VCs. <laughs> <laughs> do you agree on that? And how do you test for that? How do you get behind the veil, right? <laughs> I've said my piece, so I'll hand it over to David or Oten. Sure, just add on, on that. And I agree with Chris here, is that it becomes, for me at least, it becomes more difficult to see the death within VCs. So VCs today are much more similar with their pitch, with their deck, with their documents, compared to five to 10 years ago. Five to 10 years ago, you saw really differences and you could differentiate. The pitches were not exactly the same thing. I don't know what happened in the market. I don't know if there's a, like something like a fund accelerator or several fund accelerators you know, who tell you that should be your pitch. That is the first slide. That is the second slide. And you definitely have to have this and this and this. And they are probably working all with similar agencies to design those decks. So it's very, very difficult on the deck to see differences for us. That's why we're not relying anymore too much on decks or on documents because they look so, so undifferentiated. They look so similar. You can't really see something. What I always want to see is like, I'm using a specific expression, I think, like it's the eye of the tiger or something like that, right? So someone who is really believing in what he's doing, who is super passionate and who's not changing his thesis every three months based on the feedback he gets from LPs, right? So, but who really fights through that discussions with LPs and still believes, even if he gets several no's, 
that this is the thing that he's passionate about, that he believes in, that he wants to do. It might be region, it might be geography, you know, it might be verticals, it might be stage. So, you know, the thing is, everyone knows that I'm focused on seed funds. So I see decks where the funds pitch, we're investing in seed and A rounds. And then when they are pitching us, they change the deck for us <laughs> and say in their deck, Etan, we're a seed fund and we're just doing seed. Look, we're not stupid, right? So we, <laughs> we track things that we see, we make notes. It does not make sense. And this is something like what I said before, I'd like to see less opportunistic GPs and more really, really focused, deeply focused VCs. And I think long-term, we will benefit ideally from those kind of VCs who are really believing in what they are doing and trying hard to work with that. And also showing this to entrepreneurs, to other LPs, right, that they are focused. That is the more difficult part for us today is really to differentiate, really see differences between all the similar looking things. But, but I think Yartan, this differentiation will come with a specialization as well. Because at the end, indeed, when it comes just to the typical presentation, the structure is the same. Maybe uh, there was a kind of a template issued by PowerPoint or whatever, but it's very much the same. Then indeed, we are always and systematically looking at the USP. What is it that they make in a different way that will grant those GPs the access to the best deals? And again, we're coming back to this value-add proposition, but not only. And again, this is uh, when we were talking about investing in two teams. We need to understand what they're good at or what they're supposed to be good at. And then we have also to test it back to the market. And that's why a fair part of what we do is also getting some feedback from the market. We spend a lot of time referencing with other VCs, with entrepreneurs, with the ones with which it worked well, but also with the ones with which it worked not that well, with LPs, with whomever we know as a stakeholder in the tech industry in Europe. Because at the end, this is a small world. Everyone knows everyone, at least by name. So as a starting point, each of the GP has a reputation. Then we, our duty is to test and verify whether this is true or not. And this comes only through interacting with people with whom they've been working actively. I don't do this every time. And I don't say this is an isomer thing. Actually, isomer may be discovering this through this podcast. Occasionally, I will deliberately not look at a deck until I've actually met the person because I don't want to be colored. I want to hear the story raw. I want to get into the psyche and why they're doing this and why they think about it, why they're passionate about it. I forget who said it was. There's a really cool thing to say is it's like entrepreneur. I mean, building a VC is not very different from building a company in some senses. Is this entrepreneur going to jump through fire, walk on hot water? That's probably all wrong. And actually just go that extra mile. Some of the greatest VCs we have in our portfolio do incredible things to save companies. It's not the sexy stuff that everybody talks about, you know, getting a company to IPO and all successful. It's actually saving a company by finding a solution at the last minute so that the company doesn't go into liquidation, etc. That's the kind of entrepreneurial grit that you're kind of looking for with managers. Very interesting. One question before we proceed to the next topic. There's one trend that I have seen growing in Europe that I have been missing seeing the vast majority of the LP landscape coming to terms with and accepting. And that's the non-leading 
investor, <laughs> meaning that you go for taking smaller parts, smaller ownership in the rounds, and that is how you put together your strategy. It, of course, speaks a lot to you, I believe, Ertan, in the sense that many micro VCs and solo GPs are doing exactly this. But what I also hear from this type of VC is they are struggling to convince LPs that it's okay not to lead around. We don't have a clear opinion on that. It's not a right or wrong answer for us or question for us here. Especially in the last year, some of the GPs that we also backed had this understanding that it's very difficult in some companies to be the lead investor, but it's easier to be a co-investor, especially if it's a small ticket, right? You can still add value, you're still a brand, you still have a great network, but you're maybe not good enough to lead that seed round, right? And now for us is the question, okay, that's a smaller ticket that you're placing. If the fund is also smaller, so if the ticket is related to the fund size, then you're still participating in that great company without being a lead investor. Having said this, again, there is no clear way if that works or not, right? Sometimes it works well. And I think sometimes it's just difficult, especially in, in very competitive fronts in a time that we are at the moment where a lot of funds have a lot of money, they can lead rounds, they are very aggressive. There might be not a lot of room for those you know, smaller checks. And there are several smaller funds who want to do that smaller check. So that becomes a problem. If you break it down, it comes down to the quality of the GP. And if it still makes sense to accept this angel-like ticket from a strong person that still adds value. And you have to prove that you add value. And again, founders probably today also do reference calls and try to understand, you know, is that even small GP, will they help us? You know, will they be a good added value to us? I still think that some of the smaller funds GPs add more value than some of the bigger funds in very early stage rounds because they are so focused and so dependent on those small checks that they are doing in small early stage rounds. Whereas some of the bigger funds, it's an opportunistic ticket, even if they lead some of the early rounds. If it's a 1 million round and they do a 500K check, but they are a 100 million fund or a 200 million fund, it's a very opportunistic check, right? Whereas the small LP was doing a 100K or a 200K check in that round, it might be a very significant check for their fund. That's our more, you know, I would say general answer to this question. It's difficult to answer super correctly. And we are just, you know, regularly seeing, trying to understand the market and where we can stand. But in the end, the decision is really more related. If we really strongly believe in that GP and might be a solo GP again, we might buy his strategy. You know, we might believe in him doing the strategy. And there is a risk that the strategy will not be perfectly executed over the next three years or four years. We don't know that. Yeah, I think at the end, we're not specifically looking for leading investors, but for end-zone investors. And this is a difference. And what is also important to acknowledge is that depending on the stage of development of the companies, as Artem just said, if this is very early stage, seed or pre-seed, for sure, being an end-zone investor will most probably translate into leading the runs, but with smaller tickets and over time, they will be diluted, but we see lots of very early stage focused investors remaining on boards, being active board members of companies, even when they raise their later stage growth or pre-IPO runs, because they're adding values. Yeah. And even though they have not been investing in the last two, three, four rounds, because the funds just do not have the means anymore, but still they remain on board because of the relationships they've built with the founders and what they bring in terms of knowledge and strategic support to the company. I think I would just add two very quick things. Firstly, 
think about the case where you've got a repeat entrepreneur who has been phenomenally successful, is building something new, and lets one of your GPs in with a small ticket because of who he or she is and what they can offer and what they can bring. Remember, there is this completely different sort of way of capital just following things. There is the approval of that capital with those kinds of entrepreneurs. And just to underscore David's excellent point about we have two cases in Darktrace and in UiPath where the seed investor was on the board up until the IPO, and they hadn't been involved in rounds for some time. And that's phenomenal. And it's because the CEO trusts and values their input. I think that's the perfect transition from putting pressure on the GPs and what was going to happen and what's the best strategies and so on to the next topic, which is meant to try and oust some uh, bad LP behavior. Because the next topic is what behaviors from LPs are you seeing in the market that GPs should be aware of and that they should also be very wary of? I will let you, Ayrton, start taking this question. Yeah, okay, happy to start with that. I mean, interestingly, in my opinion, of course, the LP market, in especially Europe, is still early, right? So it's still, a lot of private LPs are still unexperienced. What you see is a similar trend probably like in companies when VCs follow others, okay? And I think you have this very strong trend that LPs at the moment, I think, seem to follow other LPs a lot. Right. So if the EIF is invested, for example, I think a lot of conservative LPs, it will be easier for them to follow on an institutional investor like EIF. Same for Isomer. I think Isomer is probably like a stamp if they are going to invest. And this will be communicated, then a lot of other LPs just follow without doing their real own due diligence. It's one of the feedbacks that we gave always to GPs. You know, you don't have to tell us your other LPs. It's really not relevant for us because I don't want to make my decision dependent on the other names in the cap table. You don't have to sell that to me, right? So you don't tell me, I don't know, this and that and that is an LP at and you should be also an LP. I don't care about that, right? So I don't know if that's a, let's say, wrong behavior. It's just a behavior that I see in the market that this is happening. It makes it, of course, easier for a lot of LPs instead of you know, going through all the dirt yourself and trying to understand which GPs should I back really, right? It's easier to follow others. That's a trend that I've seen. Absolutely. And I think that if we just say, so what should GPs be wary of right there? They should be wary of spending time with LPs that will never jump by themselves. They might as well spend their first time with the ones that are ready to do that. Do you have any tactics for GPs on how to then tease out that behavior so that they can quickly identify whether these LPs will be ready to jump? Very difficult. <laughs> there is no answer to that question. For me, I, I don't have an answer for that. It's very difficult. I think, you know, there is this clear recommendation. A clear no is very helpful from LPs. And GPs should probably also ask for that, right, actively. You know, are you interested or not? I think in the end, and it's I see myself as a GP here as well, right, because I'm raising money myself. And sometimes it's this optionality to having, you know, potential LPs being still interested is something that you still keep open, right? So you try to avoid that no. I think if someone is really strong enough in raising and being a good fundraiser and uh, he should ask for that, right? And LPs ideally should make a faster yes or no decision 
to be honest, sometimes we keep that time horizon also for us to understand and compare and to see, you know, and we, for example, do something like a priority. We track funds with a higher priority for us. And then we try to compare what we see in that time. Let's say a very small proportion of funds that we do is a quick yes. And a large proportion is a quick no, okay? But then there is, I would say like maybe 10 to 20% of the funds that we see is some you know, probability that it might be a yes or it might become a no. Give you an example. We started looking at crypto funds, I think three to four years ago. So in the beginning, it was like learning, understanding. We took a lot of time speaking to those GPs. It was not a quick yes or no because we didn't understand it really what they were doing. Right? So it was building that relationship, trying to meet several of those crypto GPs and trying to compare and make a decision. That is, of course, from the GP point of view, just one part of all of our investments, right? So it's not like that we are just focused on crypto and we can spend all the time on that part. So it took us really a long time in the beginning to uh, make decisions. That's not ideal. I agree to that when talking, again, from the GP perspective. But that's the way, uh, unfortunately, it is for us at the moment. I will ask you to think more, all of us, on things that or behavior that you see in the market that from LPs that you think is bad. But while you do that, I'll kick up one question, which is, one thing that I am hearing from GPs is some are saying that I want LPs that just have a do no harm behavior. That is all I'm looking for. I don't need anything else from my GP or from my LPs. And then there are others that are looking for specific value adds. I'm curious to hear your take on this and where you, of course, position yourselves, but also how you guide GPs in thinking through how they put together their LP constellation and so on. I remember one super venture, and it wasn't very long ago, it must have been 2019, having a series of GP meetings. The majority were first-time or relatively new VCs. And the conversation, hi, Chris, let me tell you about your fund, our fund. We're an AI crypto fund. We're at 50 million. We're going to be doing in Belarus. We're going to be doing really interesting stuff. We've got an amazing team. And that's the trend of the conversation. I then went over to Super Return to meet a very experienced VC, Fund6. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? How are you doing with your fund? Have you raised more capital yet? Are you open? What are you looking for? If anyone listens to this, takes one thing away from me, which is not a big thing I know, that is the secret. Find out where your LP is. It's not rude. You don't have to do it in an aggressive way. And just say, where are you? Are you looking for something that looks like what I'm doing? Because our fundamental issue, apart from boring things like the amount of capital and time and all that stuff is, are you additive to our portfolio? And the bigger the portfolio you have, the more difficult that is. And so I think that's the biggest sort of thing that I have learned in the last five years of understanding this market is understand who you're talking to before you open your mouth about what you're doing. 
basically there are two kinds of behaviors which are unusual for us. The ones which we consider are maybe not in line with the, the concept of Paripasu we are promoting, and the ones which are really uh, kind of bad behaviors in a way. So I will start with the first category, which is about any kind of preferred treatment requested by LPs. Should it be with economic rights or whatever, and which usually comes through shareholding, even a minor one in the management company, or some carried interest allocation. Typically, this is a no-go for us unless we have a very strong rationale to accept it on an exceptional basis, but then usually it's accepted for one generation of fund, but for the next one, it will not be the case anymore. And then when it comes to more uh, typical bad behaviors, there are the ones which sometimes, if not systematically, come from a corporate type of investors who want to have a, a direct impact, the fund's making a deviation from its intended investment strategy by asking to focus more on certain specific segments, sectors, or type of companies, or also some kind of bad practices that we've seen, which are not very common, but still sometimes an LP asking for uh, the fund to pay for all their uh, due diligence costs or things like that, uh, whatever their decision would be. Or, yeah, this is not a typical, we would say, a sophisticated investors or institutional investors approach that we like. That all makes a lot of sense. I spent some time yesterday with a GP and we have made the decision to invest and we were having a discussion, how much would you like? This is perhaps an unusual question to ask but it is at the center of how we think about the partnership with our GP. It is conceivable that actually you don't want one LP to have a particularly large amount or you don't want to below a certain small amount, etc. So I think the thing that I would encourage beyond what I said earlier about understand your LP is consider this conversation as a partnership. LPs are not gods. We just happen to do a job with other... We've got LPs. Even Davey's got LPs. So we all kind of are in the same game. We're all trying to do one very simple thing, and that's build amazing companies that will be sustainable, will be fantastic, will create employment for the next generation, etc., and all those good things. And think about this. Think almost like a sort of a commercial partnership and trying to have that sort of very sort of rational sort of relationship. And, you know, sometimes, you know, because we all are in the fundraising business in one way or another, I will just ask an LP that I'm asking for capital for who hasn't responded or hasn't been clear. We're assuming you're out. Please shout if I'm wrong, which sounds a little aggressive. But actually, I'm just asking you to treat me like a normal human being and give me the decency of an answer. That's not rude. It's completely reasonable. And I would encourage every person that's fundraising to request and demand that of the people you're asking money for. In our view, the second best answer an LP can give Isoma is no, because we know. What is the one commodity that we have in such short supply? It's called time. And if you're spending time trying to convince an LP to come into your fund when actually they have no intention of doing it or hasn't got a process to figure it out, then why are you spending time on it? Go spend that time with someone who might. I want to um, double down on a, a slightly unrelated topic, but it connects to the party pass treatment and, you know, uh, strategic LPs and the risk there. 
I have no idea of the numbers here, but if I had to guess, I'd say that if you have any CVCs in your portfolios, like it might be one or two, <laughs> right? I'm interested to knowing, and this is somewhat of a provocative question, your views on CVCs, what are your concerns? And on the other side, on the flip side, what do you see as the pros of these kind of structures versus privately owned CVCs? And you're talking about CVCs that we would be investing in, right? Not CVCs yeah, yeah, alongside yeah. which we could go into yeah, yeah. as, as an LP, yeah, yeah. So your perspective as an LP. Okay, so, so basically we have known. <laughs> and we have known for simple reasons. The first one being the risk of absence, not like, but absence of independence in terms of decision-making. Because even though the team could claim that they, will, they are fully independent in uh, the way they are operating, you never know how it happens. And surprisingly, when the teams become independent, truly independent, they claim that not all of the track record is attributable to them, especially the bad deals, because they were forced to do them in a way or the other. So that's one of the reasons why we do not do that. And on top of that, undue too high, I would say, pressure or position of those corporates in the setup will make us too uncomfortable to invest. And that's why also whatever the fund side or whatever the type of investor would be, we cannot go in a fund where an LP, whomever it would be, can have more than 50% of the fund size. I was actually just about to ask to develop that a bit. What kind of influence from a single LP, which is typically a corporate, are you willing to accept? Because a lot of the GPs we see raising capital these days do so because they know that they have a good relationship to some CEO or some chairman or some family-owned business and they can see that, okay, I can actually get 20% or whatever off the LP commit from one entity. I just need to do X, Y, C and, you know, we're good friends. We're having parties in the garden also. When are you seeing that, okay, we can't do this anymore. It's not an independent structure. I think it's not necessarily the percentage, although I think you're right, David, that the percentage you just mentioned is far too high. But it is how do they operate in the management company? How do they operate if the management company has a board? How do they operate in the limited partner advisory board? How do they operate in the IC? And I think a red line for us is if in any of those types of structures that they have a veto or a controlling perspective, that's very tough for us to get over because you're not backing them. You're backing the GP to go out and do the business of venture capital. I see nodding all around, so I guess <laughs> disagreement. Yeah, yeah, no, but just something also on top of that. Uh, and I recall one of the very first investments we had in a VC fund from a, a corporate. It was one of the first deals that I was working on at EIF, end of 2010, something like that. And I recall calls that we had with the CFO and the CEO of this big corporate around midnight uh, the day before Christmas, just because they were coming with unreasonable requests. Something like, yeah, if the fund does not invest more than X percent in this field, they will get no carry, whatever. <laughs> or yeah, otherwise, everything will be allocated to us. So, guys, it, it does not work this way, and it cannot, and we will not accept it. So it was about education. And also, what we've been pushing for is to have a kind of win-win agreement, meaning that some of those uh, corporates will come just and only, and we know that, to have an access to uh, deal flow. Okay, fine, but then it cannot be done with no rules. 
meaning that uh, they cannot go and push a GP for any reason not to invest in a company and then invest themselves directly. Or it cannot be that there's no offering on their side. What happens in most of the cases is that those corporates offer an access to their labs, to their teams, to test the markets, to open doors to potential customers and things like that. So in many, if not all of the cases, we ask this to be documented. And I guess the general opinion is the same for VC firms spun out of bigger PE traditional structures. Yes, in, in this case, it's slightly different because the kind of sponsor could be this, uh, said a PE firm, which would come with typically a kind of important commitment in amount. Sometimes as sponsors, they also request some potential carry points or something like that, which again, for a first generation could be considered, even though we don't like it very much, but usually no more than that. But it can work. And what I mean by that is you can have a cornerstone LP that has a significant percentage if it's professional, documented, well-structured, and we're comfortable of the controls or lack of controls from that entity, then it can work. I have a follow-up question there because we touched earlier on in this talk on the rise of uh, VC incubators and VC accelerators and what we call them, and also very important advisors to VCs where suddenly we start to seeing external entities having ownership because they helped them a lot in the beginning. What do you guys think about that? It might be capital injections into the management company, and for that reason, there's a payment (laughs) and an equity share. What are your perspectives on this? What should GPs be aware of? Some requests we've seen, uh, it was maybe uh, two, three years ago, not that frequently and that recently, was to keep an option to potentially allow the kind of big uh, U.S. uh, corporate banks to come and committing significant amounts in the fund, but also getting some shares in the Manco. We were not super fan of this. When we accepted it, because it happened, it was in a very limited manner, meaning very few percentages. But there are trends. We cannot fight against trends, you know. So it's just about making them fit with what seems to be reasonable and acceptable. In Isomer's little life to date, we have incubated, genuinely incubated for funds. And that means the team arrived and said, we have very significant domain expertise We would like to become a VC. Can we partner and become a VC? So then you get to the topic of economics and how it helps. The first thing I think that is a complete no-no is anything to do with the management company. This must be theirs. Second thing is any share of fees. Let's face it, for some of these funds that are just starting, including my own, fees are not plentiful. Fees are something you hate, actually, because it's a drag on performance. It's a drag on everything. It's, you just want a world where there are no fees, but you have to live. So you don't want to mess with that fees. And so the only remaining thing is carry, but it has to be in a way, A, that other LPs are okay, and secondly, that the vast majority of the incentive remains with the manager. Yeah, well, what we don't want to break is the alignment of interest, because this is the main element driving the performance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to add very few here, I think I agree mainly, and we don't, like in type of funds that we invest, we advise most of those funds not to, you know, share or give away GP shares. We don't have a big influence because we are a small LP ourselves. We never asked ourselves actively for it. I think we accepted one fund where we have some kind of reduced carry agreement. 
because it was a first close and they offered that and we accepted that. But in general, I think from the 45 funds I've invested in, 44 or 43 have exact same Paris-Passouche terms than any other LP. We always try to understand if any other LP has that. Unfortunately, not every GP is very transparent about that. So it's not like that you get the full cap table or every side letter. It is not the case, I think, in LP 1 to 20. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So especially in the U.S. structures, they don't have this kind of understanding of transparency. Like They don't share who they have as an LP sometimes, what kind of term agreements they have with those LPs, the site editors. So it's sometimes a black box. You don't know 100%. In the end, so that's just an advice, try not to do. But in the end, it's a decision of the GP, right? So if he thinks that's fair and that's fine and he's accepting some kind of share or reduction with some LPs, that's fine. You know, until he is fine with that and it doesn't really disturb his budget and his alignment, as David said, I think the alignment is extremely important. So just to give you another perspective, to give you another example of what happened in our case, we spoke at some point with, you know, some of the placement agents. Okay. It was a longer discussion and I thought, you know, we can work with them maybe. And it was very interesting. In the end, they came with the offer of getting, like they wanted to have one third of all fees, like one third of all our budgets, not only the management fee, but also the carry. So I was shocked and I was like, like, how does it even make sense? You will raise one year for us and you want to have one third of all revenues. It just doesn't make sense. right? So I think it should be in the responsibility of the GP, and in that case, I was the GP, right, to decide, does that make sense for me or not, right? Will I go forward with that or not? And it's a super clear no for us, right, in that case, to not share one third of all our revenues with the placement agent. And so it's the same thing. I think it really depends on the kind of LP, if you really want to, and what you are really sharing and what you are reducing, etc. One word on the CVC you mentioned, I think I didn't understand it. So very quickly, we never invested into a CBC ourselves, okay? I think there are some trends where funds are spinning off from CBCs and starting raising from private LPs. There, it really depends if they're really fully independent. You know, it's a separate structure, a separate, you know, this team is not anymore involved in the corporate, et cetera, et cetera. That might be. I have never seen it. So in our case, it's we have never done a fund spinning off from a corporate, at least. From the LP side, yes, ideally, I think if you're a GP, ideally, we would expect the corporate not to have too much influence, right? Not to expect too much, not to have too deep side layers, not to have too much influence with the GP and let the GP do his work in the end. As the IF, technically speaking, we can go up to 49.9% of any fund that we want to, that we back and want to back. But in practice, we prefer to remain around 20 to 30%, if not less, if the manager does not need us to such an extent. And also by promoting this pari passu treatment and not requesting any kind of share of Manco, carried or whatever, with the number of funds we have helped launching on the market. Otherwise, it would just be opening the Pandora box. And this is something we absolutely do not want. I think we could go for another two hours asking you guys questions on, uh, you know, the details and Paripasu treatment, transparency and VC. I can think of a bunch, but we're running out of time. So I just want to take the time to appreciate you giving us some of the uh, 
most anti-commodity that exists, <laughs> which is your time. I appreciate it. I'm sure there's a bunch of learnings for our listeners, and hopefully we can do this again in the future. Thank you all. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Four Degrees is the VC relationship intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.